through the pieces of the armor of God. I trust that it has been a blessing for you. Uh, I trust it's been a blessing even as much as it's been a blessing for me to go through it. Now, you remember last week was the helmet of salvation. And you remember the illustration that I said was, you know, years ago, in our day and age, we didn't wear helmets when we rode bikes. And so it's kind of strange for us older folks to think about just everybody wearing a helmet, but I think it's good. Um, But then I said, you know, that could explain why we are as we are as the older generation, because we didn't wear helmets. Well, I'm going to talk about knives and swords in this sermon and probably also next week. Now, this one here Doesn't matter whether you're old school or not, you want every person, including and especially young people, to be careful with knives and swords, and uh, probably a bunch of us who had knives growing up have have cuts. I actually one time cut a tendon in my finger while I was fishing, and uh, that's a good reminder to be careful when you have those things. So we'll be talking about the sword of the spirit. However... We did not quite finish everything about the helmet of salvation. So I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but I will review it, and then we're going to cover eternal security. So that is a picture of probably the Roman soldiers' helmets that they used. And we talked about the helmet of salvation especially in understanding salvation and specifically assurance of salvation. This is what the helmet of salvation is all about. If you are not sure of your salvation, you could take two steps forward for the Lord and three steps back when the Satan says, oh no, you're not even a believer. So I really believe this is what this is talking about, the assurance of salvation, not necessarily the giving out of the gospel. We covered that under the uh, shotting our feet with the the peace of the gospel. So we're going to talk about this, but also in understanding this, you have to understand the security of salvation. One of the things that gives us security, helps us with this peace that we put on our heads, is knowing what God says about it, that we cannot, as true believers, we cannot lose our salvation. So we're going to cover that, and then when we're done, we'll continue on and we'll move to the sword of the Spirit. With that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us these things to understand properly what the gospel and what salvation actually is, lest someone should be led astray by Satan's error and not have salvation. But then, Father, for the believer, it goes to a different tactic, and that tactic is to try to make the believer unstable, unsure of his own salvation, and so he can't really go forward very much for you. Father, we ask that we understand the scriptures that talk about that assurance, but then, Father, may it be, may it be that we find our full foundation on the word of God that talks about eternal security for all those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Would you teach us this morning? And then, Father, a little bit, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the fantastic, the most powerful, 
sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we go. Um, Just quickly, looking at these and just quickly looking at these, we talked about what is the piece of the helmet and the helmet of salvation and what, what does that mean? Number one, it would mean understanding salvation. Uh, As I mentioned before, I've been so disheartened in the last few years, probably the last decade, of hearing testimonies of uh, believers that weren't even close, weren't even close to what the gospel is. And I, I shared with you that, you know, that one guy said he hit a patch of ice, he cried out, Lord, save me, the car straightened out, and from then on he thought he was saved, the saved the verbiage that we see with the Bible. So we began to talk about that. And as we did, we said it is, first of all, Christ dying for me in place of substitutionary atonement. That is the heart of it. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. Four words explains salvation. Christ died, paying the penalty for me. Not just that he did it, But he did it for me, and I placed my faith and trust in him. And speaking of faith, we mentioned about saving faith. So one of the things that sometimes we find ourselves in, and somebody says, oh, yeah, I believe all that. You know, I believe all that stuff. Here, I'll sign to a dotted line on those beliefs. Well, I'm glad you believe it. But faith is not merely intellectual. Faith is also an act of the will, whereby you call upon him, you receive him. All of these are verbs that are used in the Bible to explain saving faith. Your faith is moving in a direction. That's what it means, believe in. You're moving into into a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trusting in him for your salvation. But then once you have, once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, I don't want to see you doubt your salvation. I don't want to see you go through that. And many of us have gone through that over the years, uh, and that's fine. And I think it's just a matter of God maturing us, strengthening our faith, and us becoming grounded in the sword of the Spirit. Can't help it. That's all in my mind. That's what we're going to look at eventually. There were three reasons I gave for possibly a believer having a lack of assurance. One, a lack of knowledge. Maybe that believer doesn't fully understand what what was said here in John chapter 20, verse 3. But these things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And in 1 John, it says, these things have been written so that you may know, not hope, not suppose, not guess, but know that you have eternal life. And you say, well, what does it really matter? Well, that's why we have the helmet of salvation. That's why it's so important. Satan will have a heyday. So the first one is a lack of knowledge. The second one is a lack of faith. It does come to An individual, they have to just stop doubting. They have to stop struggling. And they say, you know what? If God said it, I believe it. And that should settle it. The third reason for a possible lack of assurance of salvation would be a lack of victory, of sin in your life, of unconfessed sin. 
these types of things. These types of things will keep you guilty. And you will never lose your relationship with the Lord, but it will seem as if your fellowship with him is not what it was or what it should be until you come to him and confess that sin. And that's all you have to do is confess that sin. 1 John 1, 9. Well, other than those reasons, let's look at the basis for assurance of salvation. We said number one was indeed the word of God. It was God's word. That, that's what tells us what we should think about anything. I mean, you shouldn't have any doubts about anything, any subject, any, any morality because of the word of God. Well, what if other people don't believe it? We're talking about the word of God. We're talking about God here. So we find these things in the word of God. Secondly, God's faithfulness. So when in God's word, he promises something. We know he's going to keep his promise. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be saved, but shall be saved because of God's faithfulness. It's his character that stands behind the word of God. Thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit, one of his ministries, is to bear witness that we are the children of God. And so he helps us put all that together when we realize that we've trusted Christ, we realize that there's fruit in our lives, and we see, you know what? Yes, I I see it. I see it experientially. And then there's something else that is in the scriptures, and this is particularly in 1 John. 1 John was written, in a sense, to show you what a believer looks like, what's in his life, what kind of fruit. Now, the one thing about 1 John, when you read it, there's a lot of things that look like he's saying perfection, perfection. If you're not perfectly righteous, you're not a believer. It's not saying that at all. When you look at it in the verb, it's habitually. If you're habitually doing this, not if you sin once in a while, in a particular area, but if you're habitually doing it and there's no remorse whatsoever and you're perfectly fine with it, that's when you need to start questioning. What is some of the fruit? Well, the first one is fellowship with God. And not only does John tell us that we can have fellowship with God just like he is having fellowship with God, but Romans And Galatians talk about when the Holy Spirit is in us, we cry in our spirits, Abba, Father, which means Daddy, Daddy. In other words, when when you're in the midst of this emergency and you're about to cry out, who are you crying out to? I think Lou mentioned something about that today, that we need to turn upward to God rather than outward to other people and other sources. But in this emergency... We should cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Father, help us. And oftentimes throughout the Christian life, do do you not do that? Even when we're doing the worship songs and and you see something expressed and you're you're saying, Oh, Lord, I want that to be true in my life. Abba, Father. Secondly, there's a desire for God's word. David said, Oh, how I love your word. It's the meditation all day long. You're going to have a desire for God's word. I read God's word before I was saved, but it didn't make any sense. But it wasn't until after I became a believer and began to see it and understand it and 
And even in difficult times in my life, what, what helps you over those? The word of God, the sword of the spirit. That's twice now. I can't help it. Thirdly is an awareness of sin. When you come to Christ, you are now conscious in a, in a deeper sense of your sin. Now, you knew what sin was, and it kind of bothered you, but now it's almost as if I can't live this way. I want to have fellowship with my father, and sin is going to stand in between our fellowship. But it's an awareness of sin. I know what sin is, and this is why we don't go to culture. This is why we don't go to the world for our principles and for our morality, Because they don't have an awareness of sin. In fact, what they're doing is erasing the definition of sin. That's what we don't want. Fourthly, there's a kinship of believers. I didn't like to be around believers before, but I love you all now. And and as soon as you meet someone, even for the first time, there is that, and you find out they're a believer. I mean, there is like, it's the strongest a connection that I can ever think of. And I believe to go along with that is a passion for souls. That, you know, sooner or later we're thinking of someone in our family, someone in our neighborhood, a wonderful person but not saved, and we just, they've got to know. They've got to know. And that's the passion for souls. So these are some of the Christian fruits that help us understand that we are believers if we have them. Well, Let's move now to security of salvation, understanding salvation, assurance of salvation, and now security of salvation. I'm going to spend a little time in this. Is it possible for a believer to lose his salvation? No, not according to the scriptures. And I'm going to show you many of the scriptures that say so. What do you do with an individual who professes word professes professes to know Christ but then falls away and we've seen that sadly we've seen that even in this church years ago someone had fallen away and as we talked to this person we said well do you even consider yourself a Christian now by the way this this was a strong what it would seem like a strong Christian Knowing the word, I think knowing Greek. And he said, well, since I don't believe in the existence of God, and I don't believe the scriptures, and I don't believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins or my sins, the answer is no, I'm not a Christian. Now, I don't know how you can do that, except if you were not a believer in the first place. Even a Christian who's backsliding knows he's backsliding, and he's miserable. He's miserable. He's not going to say, well, I'm just going to say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in Christ, I don't believe in salvation, because he's miserable. The reason he's miserable is because he knows he's a believer. And by the way, that's another thing, too. When it comes to doubting salvation, one of the things that I've observed over the years, many times it's the believer who is doubting. What, why, why are you doubting what you don't believe? Ah, you do believe it. You're, you know that it could mean the difference between heaven and hell if you're not a believer and you're scared about it and these doubts are plaguing you and Satan's just stoking the fire. 
Many times it's because they are a believer and they do believe. You know what? An unbeliever does not care. If at best I think I'm a good person and maybe my good works will be enough that if there is a God, he will let me into his kingdom. Sadly, that is man's wisdom and not God's. So, a believer cannot, a true believer cannot lose his salvation. Even, even if he falls into sin and, and, you know, repents, comes back, even if he backslides. But for someone to completely turn away after seemingly being a believer, we scratch our heads and, and there will be always some who say, well, he lost his salvation. No, he never had it. The reason I say that is because of the infallibility of the word of God. You can't say what's not true. Well, let's look at these, and I'm going to spend a little time. And there's a slight potential we won't even get to the sword of the spirit other than me mentioning it and now there the third time. All right, the first one that we look at is that God completes the work. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And we love this verse anyway. We love this verse anyway because it's an encouraging verse that no matter what happens in the Christian life and our struggles, maybe even failures, he's not done with us. Even backslidden state, even backslidden state, the believer will eventually find out God has been waiting the whole time and he's been wanting to finish his work. It says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, God is faithful, as we've already said, and he will finish what he began. And this is salvation. And salvation is, if you think about it, begins the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior. But then salvation, in a sense, goes on by way of sanctification. So if you're a believer, he is sanctifying you. And what he started, he will finish. Now, it doesn't say he will Maybe finish it depending on how you act. Praise God he doesn't say that. You know, well, depending on how attentive you are, you know, if I see you falling asleep while I'm trying to teach you, God is saying, well, then, then we're done. No, or, or if you fail. So this is a beginning promise that he who saved you is going to continue it. He said that. Now, should I look at this verse and kind of just question all of the, well, well, what does he mean by perfect? And then what does it mean that he's going to do a good work? And, and, and then try to give my own position in there to, to make it sound like, but you could still lose your salvation. Not if you're a true believer, because he will continue it. And there is the appeal, well, uh, I'm going to save it. For once in my life, I'm going to save it. Except this. Sword of the Spirit. That's four. All right. The next one is no true believer will be lost or can be lost. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 39. Now, you, you have to look at these at face value. I know that there's times you want to put something in and say, well, it says that, but, but it's not covering all of the bases. This time it is. This time it is. John 6.39, this is the will of him who sent me. God's will. That's pretty strong, isn't it? 
that of all that he has given me, and these are all those who come to Christ, true believers, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But what about if they say themselves, I'm out, I'm opting out? No, no. If it was a true believer, a true believer would have been given to Christ. Christ will lose nothing. And that includes someone coming and saying, well, I don't believe anymore. That is a sign that they were not saved in the first place. Jesus is promising us this. I lose nothing. God continues the work. Jesus will lose none. Can you lose yourself? No. And this next verse is going to, I think, really slam dunk it. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. John 10, 28 and 29. Now, I love this verse, and when you think about this verse, it's just so fantastic. And then I have a hard time with people who try to say, but you could still lose your salvation. I just have a hard time with that. John 10, 28 and 29 says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. There it is. There's one. Unless he's a liar. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And if that's not enough, you, you want to know when the Bible emphasizes something? When it repeats it. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So you have the believer placed in the palm of Jesus' hand and then the father having Jesus in the palm of his hand and us in it. I don't know how you can even try to think about that you could possibly lose your salvation. Now, I know what some will say, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but I want to just give you a little bit of a logic lesson here. It comes from R.C. Sproul's logic lesson. This is called a universal negative. A universal negative is a circle with nothing in it. There may be dots outside the circle, but there's nothing in it. That's exactly what this. No one, no, there's no one in the circle who can pluck it out of the father's hand, out wrestle him, arm wrestle him. But often we hear someone says, but what about if I take myself out of the father's hand? Let's go back to the circle. There's nothing in the circle. No one in the circle. No true believer. No person can take himself out of the father's security. And by the way, there is no scripture that says so. There's no scripture that says so. That's a universal negative. A circle with no verses in it. There's no scripture that said, now there may be some that are hard to understand, and we'll even actually talk about this for just a moment. So we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up. But here's what someone says. The security of Jesus' sheep rests with him as the good shepherd who has the power to keep them safe. Neither thieves and robbers nor the wolf can harm them. Verse 29 makes clear that the father,
father ultimately stands behind the sheep's security. For no one is able to steal from God, who is in sovereign, all-powerful control of all things. No stronger passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament exists for the absolute eternal security of every true Christian, John MacArthur. This is exactly right. Now, would you like to see a universal affirmative? That's a circle with everything in it of that category. All right, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And I quote this often, and I love this. And this is one of those verses that helps us know eternal security. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I just don't see how it could be any clearer. I mean, you have to do some hermeneutic exercises to try to even make it sound this way. But listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the universal affirmative is in the phrase, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've talked about that in the book of Ephesians, in Christ. How many times does Paul use that? And it's a positional truth. It's a circle, and Christ is in it. And if you are in Christ, meaning if you're a believer, if you've realized that you're a sinner, that Christ died for your sins, and you've embraced him as your Savior then you go in that circle too because you're in Christ. And everything that Christ has is now yours positionally. And here's one of them. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't use the word all, but you really could supply that. For all those who are in Christ Jesus. Literally, it's for the ones, only the ones, the ones who are in Christ Jesus. We're not talking about the others. We're talking about those who know Christ, they are in it. For all of those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. And it seems to me you'd need condemnation to lose your salvation, right? I mean, I can't pick myself out of God's hands, but maybe he can still condemn me, which he won't. Because he said in his son, there is therefore now no by the way, you could kind of look at that as a universal negative. No. How, how much condemnation does the believer get? A circle with nothing in it. Okay, those things, that understanding, biblical and reasonable thinking ought to just, just woo our hearts. He saved us. We're forgiven. And though at times we don't live it like we should, we're still saved. What a Savior. Talk about grace. Talk about grace. And you know what happens when, when you sin? Maybe even doubt your salvation. Then you realize it, and you realize you were never lost And you real, uh, after coming to Christ. You realize that he's had you the whole time. He has such grace and such love. You say, I don't want to sin like that anymore. I want to serve him now. I want to I I live for this one. There's nobody like this. Well, What do we do with some of the tougher scriptures? And I'm not going to be able to look at all of them. I'm just going to look at one that has been in my mind. So I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We were there last week. It's a great place to be. We were also in here uh, in Easter. 
when we were talking about the resurrection. All right, let's jump to verse 3 first. Because in verse 3 and 4, it is the gospel. What is the gospel? Is it hitting a patch of ice, crying out, God save me, and then the car straightening out? No. Paul says, verse 3 and 4, For I deliver to you as of first, first importance. This is what matters. What I also received, that Christ died for, in our place, our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So it's the word of God that gives us that basis. But let's go back to verse 2 now. Uh, Verse 1, actually. Verse 1. This is how Paul begins it. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That's what we just read, verses 3 and 4. It means the good news. I'm a sinner on my way to hell, but the good news is that Jesus Christ died for me, and if I trust him as my Savior, I have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. That, it should be the best news. It should be a superlative. It's euangelion. He says, which I preach to you. So now the apostles were infallible in their preaching and infallible in their writing, the apostles and the prophets. And what he preached to us was the truth, the truth of this gospel, which he said in verse 3 and 4. And then he says, which also you received. There it is. They received Christ as their Savior. They heard the facts of the gospel, and they wanted to be saved, and they received Christ. They took Christ as their Savior. They placed their hand, the hands of their faith, upon him as their sacrifice, and they were saved the moment that the faith reached Christ. And then it says, in which you also stand. So they're not vacillating necessarily. When it says, you've taken your stand. This is what I believe. This is the gospel. It's not in their day and age, polytheism with all of these other gods. It is one God and one Savior, and he is the one who died on the cross for our sins, and this is, there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. He says, you've taken your stand. Then look at verse 2. By which also you are saved. There it is. Saved. We're going to use biblical terms, and a biblical term is saved. What does it mean? It means that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life because you have called upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, not might, shall be saved, by which you are saved. So they believed in the gospel. They believed in Christ. They heard a preach from Paul. They received it. They received Christ. They've taken their stand, and they are saved. And then Paul says this, If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And we scratch our heads a little bit, and it's verses like that, that those who believe that you can lose your salvation will say, You see? He talked about them being saved, but they could also be lost after they are saved. That's not what he said. That's not what he said, and it's not what he meant. I think it begins in the beginning, if you hold fast the word. In other words, you might have professed that you know Christ, 
But sometime down the road, you haven't held fast to it anymore. You don't believe it anymore. You're not a believer anymore. Uh, you're not a believer. You never were. And this is what he said, unless you have believed in vain. And it certainly doesn't mean we believed in eternal life and then come to find out it's all a hoax. That's not what it is. You believed, but you believed with no substance. You believe perhaps in your mind or maybe you prayed a prayer or you've done something, but it meant nothing to your heart when you prayed it. There was no sincerity whatsoever. So you have believed in vain and it's moving away. You've moved away from Christ the Savior. Now you say, well, are you sure that's what it means? Yeah, I am. I am sure. In Hebrews, it says something similar talking about Christ was a was faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if here we go if we hold fast what our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end a true believer will why because the father will keep him because no one can pluck him from Jesus's hand because Jesus promised that he will lose none but the idea is that this person is not going to hold fast their confidence and boast of hope. It doesn't mean because they have doubts. It means because they, it's more than a doubt, they have rejected. They have rejected it. And you do see people who are in the movement of deconstructionism with the faith. And we're only deconstructing so that we can build up in many times, if not every case, many times, they never come back to Christ. They doubt the they doubt Christ's death and resurrection and salvation. But that's how they do it. The the idea is now I'm not talking about somebody who's who's struggling with their faith and you're working through it. Good for you. And I'd be glad to help you. I'm not talking about that individual. I'm talking about the movement, deconstruction movement, where it's just another name for we don't believe it anymore. And that's exactly how it works out. And they read all the people that don't believe it either. Instead of believing many of the good men of God that do believe it. Well, we also see another one. In 1 John chapter 2, it says this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And this isn't losing salvation. This is looking like you have it and then never having it. And then it eventually comes out. The truth comes out. And they went from them. So this is what we're talking about. So, yes, there are tough verses, and there are verses that talk like this, but this is not a person loses the salvation. It's impossible with those verses that we read. It's a universal negative, and we all know that now. And speaking of these universals, Look at Romans, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Nothing, 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 or no one, 
I don't know if that's two universal negatives or one universal negative that's, that's bringing everything in it. Nothing is able to sever the believer from the love of Christ and from Christ. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, for I am convinced. Why is Paul so convinced? Well, he's an apostle. Why is he so convinced? Because he knows the word. He knows the God whom promises these things. For I am convinced that neither death, that's a biggie, nor life, that's a biggie, nor angels. And when you're thinking of angels here, you might be thinking of good angels. But then he says, nor principalities. There you might be asserting the idea. Okay, what about the uh, angelic reign that fell, followed Satan, demons? Nope. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present. What about the future? I don't know the future. Nor things to come, nor powers. Might even be thinking of the Antichrist at this point. Nor height, nor depth. And let me just stop. Do you think Paul, or rather the Holy Spirit through Paul, was attempting to anchor our soul? Absolutely. You know, the question is asked often, why doesn't he just say it as a proposition? Really, a proposition doesn't cover it as far and as detailed as Scripture does. You think of all these things, because what would happen is if he just made a proposition, we'd go, yeah, but what about angels? Yeah, but what about Satan? You know, what about death? What about the Antichrist? He's answered you. He's answered you nor height, nor depth, and then watch, nor any other created thing. Do you know what a created thing is? The person who says you can lose your salvation if you opt out. No. You're one of those created things who, if you are a believer, you cannot lose your salvation. No No, it's very similar to not plucking us from God's hand. Nor any other created thing. You're a created thing. I'm a created thing. We can't do it. We can't separate ourselves from the eternal security of the love of God. Can I hear an amen? And this assures us and gives us assurance of salvation, which is knowing these things, helps us when the devil comes with his doubts and his fiery darts. But let me finish it. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ, the circle that we're in and Christ is in, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Three more. I'm just going to quickly read them. The Father keeps us. You want to get the Trinity involved? Let's do it. The Father keeps the believer in Jude 24, verse 24, only one chapter. Now to him, speaking of the Father, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. That's salvation. Blameless. With great joy, the Father keeps. If you are a true believer, 
you are being kept by the Father. What about the Son? You know, isn't there some sin, like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Isn't there some sin that would cast me out? No. And we'll save what the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is for another time. But it actually has something to do with rejecting Christ as Savior. So if you've come to Christ as Savior, you're not in danger of it. But I love this. What if you sin? What if you sin bad enough? Well, I'll tell you what happens in heaven. John writes about it. 1 John 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But... If anyone sins, any believer, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have someone who stands up in our place with the Father. Who? Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, when Satan, like he did in the book of Job, goes into the presence of God, accuses the saints, it says in the book of Revelation that the accuser of the brethren is put away, book of Revelation. He goes and accuses them. Did you see that? He said he loves you. Did you see that? He says he's one of yours. And at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ stands up and says, yes, that was sin. I see that sin, but I died for that sin. I died for that sin, and and there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But don't you worry, Satan. I will work in my believer's life because once we begin a good work, we will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And what about the Holy Spirit? Now, I love this because we're going to bring it full circle by going back to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We do that when we sin. Do not grieve the... So, by the way, the Holy Spirit is a person because he can be grieved. If he was just a force, he could not be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you see this, the seals that they have. It's a, it's a piece of wax with the king's signet mark on it. No one can open that. No one has the authority to open that except the intended recipient. But if he has his seal on it and he wants to seal it so that no one reads it, unless he himself determines, his seal will not allow anyone else to open it, to unseal it. Well, God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. How long? Till we sin? How long? No. Until the day of redemption. You see how clear this is? You see how clear all of these is? And you know, I love this security. I love to see this because we do struggle. When, when we look at our lives and, and, and you know, I've heard, I've heard R.C. Sproul say such things as, you know, there's times when he reads something, it's convicting, and he, and, he, and he has to kind of do soul search to make sure he's the believer. Well, let me tell you, if he had to do that, we may go through that. But it doesn't matter. It's these verses of security that are better than emotions or better than the guilt that Satan will put on us. And we still may, still may shiver a little bit, but, but deep down in our soul, we have an anchor, the, the word of God. So here's my conclusion on this. In order for a believer to lose his salvation, then 
Number one, the father has to unjustify him. We've been made righteous in the righteousness of Christ. He has to undo that. You don't see anything in scripture about that. The father must unjustify him. The son must unhand him. Because he says no one can pluck him from his hand, so he must unhand him. You don't read anything like that in scripture. And the spirit, he has to unseal the believer, which he will not. He is God, God the Holy Spirit. And he has sealed us for the day of redemption. So if for, in order for a believer to lose his salvation, then the father must unjustify him, the son must unhand him, and the Holy Spirit must unseal him. Such propositions are unbiblical and therefore unthinkable. That's what the Bible has to say about eternal security. Well, we have a few minutes, just a few minutes. So maybe I can tantalize you with the next piece. Now knowing that the helmet of salvation assures us of salvation, what is this with the sword of the spirit? So let's just talk about that a little bit. I I won't prolong this. You know me. <laughs> All right, so here's, here's this sword on, on this drawing. But here is probably the sword, the type of sword that they would have used as a Roman soldier. So the Greek word for this is called a machaira, and it refers to a small sword, six to 18 inches long. It depends upon what what the man wants. Now, this sword, this small sword, was different from the long sword, which is called the promphia, which measured three to four feet long. Now, this is very interesting because last week we talked about there there were men, the cavalry, and they would have these long swords and they'd go by and take a whack at the soldiers. But if they had a helmet on, it would protect them. And that was the promphia. And by the way, we see Jesus Christ coming back in the second coming. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So that's the large sword. And it reminds us of what was also read that Dave read Isaiah 49.2. And he's talking about the Messiah. He says, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The way, and we say, well, what does he mean? The word of God. That's what we're going to find out here in this verse. But what's the machaira then? What's this short knife or short sword, you could even call it? I mean, if it's close to 18 inches, it would be a small sword. What is this about? This was for hand-to-hand combat. So number one, while Paul is looking at the Roman soldier and he's looking at all the pieces, he's also looking at these scriptures and he's connecting the two, but he's also looking at our spiritual warfare and he's thinking, yeah, hand-to-hand combat. That is about what we do when we have spiritual warfare. It's very close and personal for one thing. The fiery darts are very close and very personal. 
And it is, we do have to fight. And by the way, it, the, the way to, to withstand the devil is not to just say, well, I'm not going to do anything. Here is, here is a weapon that we are specifically to use in hand-to-hand close combat. Now, it would be for stabbing naturally, not cutting your finger if you're fishing. That's not one of the uses. It would be for stabbing or killing the enemy. Sometimes they were curved. This is interesting. It would be for the purpose of hacking. So you're hacking at stuff now with this. Maybe arms, limbs, necks. Or we do know through history that the curved knife or sword was for slitting the throats. Graphic. I apologize. But I have to tell you that the spiritual warfare that we go through is as real and graphic as that because it will leave believers lying wounded on the ground. Not dead because we can't lose our salvation, but wounded and ineffective. There was also swords, and I believe machiras, looking at the word, that were double-edged. So a double-edged sword. So you could cut either way, or when you slice in, it cuts both sides. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged machaira. It refers to a machaira here. So we see that machairas are. Well, what are some of the uses in the Bible of the machaira? Well, I just want to look at four of them. And then we'll conclude. We'll pick this up next week. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke twenty-two fifty-two, And I, I really love to take time to look at the verses. And sometimes when there's a little time and a lot to cover, we, we don't stop and look at the verses. But it's so important because I want you to see what I have seen this prior week studying. And, 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 the, you know, and, and the flags go off, and, and, and you end up saying, well, this is, you know, I love this. Luke twenty two fifty two 52 talks about Jesus' arrest, and they came to arrest him with clubs and machairas. It says, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with machairas? And clubs as you would against a robber and makes the point that he has been in their temples daily. So that's one of the uses of a machaira. And of course, that would have been a common thing on a Roman soldier. Um, That would have been a common thing. Well, what happened in that whole episode? Well, Peter, of all people, has a machaira. You know, he's, he's bringing his pocket knife to church. (laughs) <laughs> Peter uses a machaira. What were you doing with a machaira? You don't use a machaira for fishing. In fact, when you're too young and you're 10 years old, you don't even use a pocket knife for fishing because you can cut yourself. He cut off the priest's slave's ear. John 18.10 says, Simon Peter, then having a machaira, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. 
and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, I'm not sure why Peter had the sword, but I'm glad it was just concealed, perhaps, a concealed weapon. It was a sword. It wasn't that big. But he, he drew it to fight against even Jesus' instruction. And of all people, is so brave and bold, he stands there and looks at a Roman soldier with his machaira, turns around and goes after the pre-slave who doesn't have a machaira. And he cut off his right ear. That means he almost missed. He wasn't very good with a machaira. And Jesus healed his ear and said, this is, this is not what we're called to. We're not called to be vigilantes and revolutionaries as Christians. And he had to go and die on the cross for our salvation. Well, the next one that's used in scripture or or that, that I found is when the apostle James was martyred, the first martyr, he was put to death by a Machira. So, you know, that almost sounds a little more brutal than a sword. I mean, that, that sounds, I don't know, what, what did they do? Well, they often cut the throat and beheaded, and this is how it was done. But it says, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a machaira. Now, I will say that sometimes the word machaira and hrumphaya are used interchangeably as synonyms. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, why, why shouldn't we believe that? And when we go to the book of Revelation and we learn about the Antichrist, if you remember when we went through that book, we said what was going to happen was that the Antichrist was going to receive a wound and supposedly, supposedly, he was going to die and be resurrected. This is one of the false miracles of Satan. Now, just quickly, since... Satan cannot raise anyone from the dead. The man did not die. Or he died and now they have some sort of AI replica. I don't know. You, you, you tell me. I don't know about that, but this is what I do know. That the wound that he received was from a Machira. Maybe someone was there to assassinate him. I don't know. But it does say Machira. This is, this is verse 14 of chapter 13. And he deceives those who dwell on earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, who the beast who had the wound of the Machira and has come to life. Well, that's as far as I'm going to go. But let me say this. This is enough to know that we need something for hand-to-hand combat daily. This is why you don't ever take off the armor of God. You know, pray it on each day. My goodness, don't ever take it off, especially make sure you have your Machira with you. And the Machira is used metaphorically with Satan and his demons in that we have hand-to-hand combat. Now, you would say, well, what would you use that for? 
Well, we're going to talk about that in detail, and I'm really tempted to go on and teach you a whole lot more about that, but we can't. But I will just say this. One of the things I see is these thoughts that come to you. How do you deal with thoughts? You deal with thoughts with other thoughts. You deal with thoughts with the right thoughts. You deal with thoughts that are biblical thoughts. You deal with these thoughts with a machaira, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What about temptations? How do you deal with temptation? I just stand there and clench my fist and yell out, no! Hopefully that'll work. But you deal with it the same way Jesus dealt with temptation, and this is exactly what we're going to look at next week. Every time Satan posed a temptation, Jesus began with, it is written. Excuse me, let me get my Micaiah out. And he dealt with those to each of those temptations with specific verses to the specific temptation. And then finally, what about trials that we have to go through? And we think of these trials, and they could be a thorn in the flesh. They could be other things. And it's the idea that those things bring in other thoughts. Oh, my word, God has cast me out. I am not saved because God would not allow this to happen to a believer. Or my ministry is over. All of these thoughts of discouragement and depression have now moved in. And Satan's going, yeah, this is good. Until you pull out your Machaira. And you see, first of all, you're, you're secure as a believer. Second of all, you see now that God is in control, but Satan is trying to trip you up as a believer. But you're, with the shield of faith, you're going to remain firm. And you're going to serve the Lord. And so we'll take a look at these in detail next week. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father, this was so genius. It was so wise under the Holy Spirit to have Paul look at a Roman soldier with all of his pieces, understand spiritual warfare that we go through, and then be able to metaphorically apply it to the believer of what he needs to stand. And we pray, Father, that each week we're learning a little bit more and in a better way to stand with the helmet of salvation last week and with the sword of the Spirit this week and next week. Father, we thank you that you have not saved us and then left us to ourselves. Thank you that you have not saved us, eternally secured us, and then left us to ourselves. But you have saved us, eternally secured us, and given us everything we need for life and godliness and for biblical spiritual warfare. Oh, Father, may we be wise. May we be obedient. May we use it. And we'll thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.